I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. Can you believe this is our fourth podcast? You think public demand would would have ended at number one. But here we are, (laughs) four along the way. So what we do every week is we talk about health news, and and, uh, which seems to be of particular interest. And this is just a small portion of the work that we do. I mean, we are primarily a a magazine, comes out every month. We uh, publish, print, distribute simultaneously in America and in the UK. And uh, the magazine can be found in America, in Barnes & Nobles, Whole Foods and all sorts of places. And in the UK, in places like Sainsbury's and Tesco's and Asda's and what you will. Um, But the smart people subscribe. And so they get their magazine delivered nice and early, straight to their front door. And you can find out more about us from our website, which is wddty.com. And it's twice won the accolade of world's best health website. So well worth checking out if you haven't. So without further ado, let's begin with the health news of the week. Uh, First item, heart disease, heart attacks. Still the major killer in the West, number one killer still. And it's mainly characterised by um, a condition, a process rather, known as um, atherosclerosis, where the uh, arteries begin to harden uh, because of a build-up of a fatty deposit known as LDL cholesterol, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, and eventually the build-up is such that the artery becomes blocked or occluded, as the docs like to say, at which point a heart attack happens, and that happens because it's starved of oxygen. Now, round about a third of all heart attacks are fatal. The person dies within moments which means an awful lot aren't. And um, in those cases, they reckon if you can get to the hospital within an hour or so, uh, the cardiologist will perform a stent on the artery, unblock it, and free the flow of blood back to the heart organ. So that's the uh, textbook stuff. So let's get on to some interesting things we discovered about heart disease, which seem to go against that. So the um, study has just come out, which has found that up to half of people who survive a heart attack never even knew they had one, which is quite astonishing. And that, um, which means that they never had any treatment, that they carried on with their lives. And when they compared them to people who knew they'd had a heart attack, obviously who survived it, they were diagnosed with a heart attack, and they were given statins and all sorts of drugs, both were still alive 10 years later. So it didn't seem to matter whether or not they'd been treated. How did they discover this? Well, what happened was a team of researchers were at a a, a care home, and they were just testing the heart health of, of um, of the occupants and found that Half of those had suffered a heart attack and never, ever knew it. Isn't that astonishing? So there was damage had been caused to the heart. The heart attack had occurred. They never knew. They didn't have any usual symptoms, which is tightness of the chest or classic severe pains down the left arm. None of that happened. And they just carried on with their lives and they were absolutely fine. And a second study that came out in relation to this was that um, people who go to hospital at a time when the leading cardiologist is away at a conference, are more likely to survive 
than those who were unlucky enough to have the cardiologist present who did all the stenting, they were less likely to be alive 30 days later. So again, fascinatingly, the less seemed to be more. And um, people are surviving without this treatment. So what do you make of that, Lynn? Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, we've done a lot of work on heart disease, you know, not surprisingly, as it is the number one killer. And we found that there is a vast problem with the way we approach heart disease. Everything from still not understanding the causes of it, blaming it on high fat diets, blaming it on fat, when that there's no good evidence demonstrating that fats are the problem. In fact, fats are not a problem. Fats are really essential. And it looks like from uh, increasing evidence that the real problem is processed food, is high sugar diets, essentially. So doctors don't really know why heart attacks occur, give people the wrong kinds of diets, but also of the wrong kinds of treatments. I mean, when you start looking at all of the treatments on offer for heart disease, it's no wonder that people survive better when they're not given these kinds of treatments, when the, the main doctor's away. I mean, just look at bypass surgery. You know, bypass surgery, which was considered great miracle surgery, um, you know, they have a, a name in medicine for patients who get bypass surgery, and they call them cabbages, um, which is an acronym for, uh, for bypass surgery, but it, it, and its official name. But they might as well be describing some of the patients because they suffer all kinds of things afterward, from stroke, uh, a number die on the table, a number have gut problems afterward, and, you know, maybe we lose about one-fifth of the patients just with that procedure. Now, angioplasty came along, and that was supposed to be the miracle, less invasive alternative. In that situation, a tiny little balloon gets put in your, art, your blocked artery, and it gets pumped out, and, in, and the fatty tissue, the cholesterol, gets pushed against the arterial wall. And then to make, because that usually goes back very quickly... Um, they realized, well, we better create something to keep it there. So they created the stent, which is like a little scaffolding that is flat-packed and then put into your artery and then, um, and then pushed out so that it is like little scaffolding to hold that artery's fat against the walls. There are all kinds of problems with angioplasty. There's not very much difference in mortality rates, for instance, between angioplasty and bypass surgery. And with stents, I mean, they've had all kinds of problems with uh, stent designs, um, collapsing, um, finding that there's not a big difference. So then they created stents that had a drug drip feed system, and that was causing all kinds of problems. Um, so it's, it's not surprising why this stuff is still used when you actually follow the money, sadly. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> stents are, every stent costs $15,000 in the States. Uh, doctors who perform this kind of stuff routinely make about a half a million dollars on stents alone. And of course, you've got the whole drug industry, Brian, mm -hmm. which is founded on a lot of other dubious medicine, mm. like stat, statins and mm. dubious studies, mm. uh, demonstrating not terrific survival mm. numbers. And uh, 
anyone who listened to the previous podcast, podcast number three, would have heard that uh, a study again had demonstrated that mm. the stents had no benefit over doing nothing, which was an incredible blow for cardiologists because that's what they do. And that's a major issue, which I don't know what's going to happen with it, because it was such a big and important study, whether everyone's going to actually redress how um, heart surgeons operate. I don't know what's going to happen with that. But also the other thing to say, um, LDL cholesterol forever fingered as the bad guy. Well, of course, becomes increasingly important as you get older. Once you reach the age of 50 or so, LDL cholesterol actually helps to keep um, brain health going. It's very important for brain health. And um, it isn't really that surprising that when someone over the age of 60, 65 is put on a statin, which is designed to lower LDL cholesterol, that we also see a rise in dementia and Alzheimer's. I mean, you could say it's coincidental, but equally, there could be a correlation there that you know we, we're seeing this all the time. And so I think it's just we don't really have the full story about heart disease. And it's just, just one last thing I just quickly want to say is that with stroke, for example, which I suppose you could argue is a heart attack of the brain, you know, the, the coronary arteries will create their own bypass and bypass the blocked artery. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. Well, and I think that's why we're seeing very good survival rates with people who do nothing. The only point I'd make, though, is you don't have to do nothing. I mean, a heart attack is really a wake-up call saying something in your lifestyle isn't working for you. And there's so much evidence that a healthier diet, a low, lower sugar diet, a, a natural foods, Mediterranean type diet, and all kinds of alternative remedies have a better track record than what's on offer from modern medicine. I mean, we covered it in this book uh, on heart disease. We do some books as well on heart disease and arthritis, and we covered all of the alternatives and their better, uh, their better track records. This is what it looks like in the UK. So if you do have heart disease, before you rush to your doctor, I would just say do your homework and see what the real statistics are about survival and better alternatives. Okay. You know what they say? Breast is best. But it's a message that doesn't seem to be getting through too well because manufacturers are still flogging their stuff and convincing young mothers that formula is better. And um, someone's done a report into this and quite scathing and said that all these products are both unnecessary and unsuitable. Um, and not only that, they are selling these products by telling lies to mothers, uh, such as claiming in America it's the number one brand recommended by pediatricians, except it isn't, because even the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends families to eat, to, uh, to feed their infants a nutritious diet and not use formula. The formulas are often made up of powdered milk called syrup, other sweeteners, vegetable oil, and they contain more sodium and less protein than cow's milk. Um, not that anyone should necessarily be feeding their children cow's milk, but there we are. It's, um, so the whole thing is, uh, is a complete nonsense from start to finish. And um, very, very young children, some under the age of one are being put onto these formulas and it's all about 
making money, but it's not about making healthy children and future generations who are going to be healthy. I have some really strong views about this um, because uh, we have two grown-up daughters, but we certainly were faced with feeding them um, when they were young. And I think it should be criminal for some of these co uh, companies to be flogging this kind of formula stuff um, and the and putting together the sort of solutions that they, they have. Um, first of all, they've had a long track record, Nestle and all of those kinds of companies, of flogging this stuff in third world countries and convincing mothers who were perfectly capable of breastfeeding that this was better. So it's not surprising that they're trying the same trick with so-called follow-on milks. And that's what a lot of this stuff is. They have created a, an entirely new market, they claim, of children in between, in between you know, real infancy. And they figure maybe they've lost that war with um, breastfeeding to breastfeeding, although there's still lots more women who could breastfeed if given some more support. Um, and the children between about one and three. And so mothers are being told, yes, this is the really healthy follow-on. And it's got omega-3 fatty acids, which were found to be so much more, you know, so much superior in breast milk. But the point is, and I think this is the real point, the governments in America, in the UK, should be doing far more to uh, outlaw this kind of advertising. Um, if we can't advertise a lot of alternative stuff, we sure as heck shouldn't be advertising this kind of phony food. And that's exactly what it is. The other thing I think is really important is that mothers get support in hospital when they first have babies. It's not that hard to breastfeed. <laughs> I've done it. Um, certainly raised our children um, with it and found that it wasn't hard you just need a little bit of help initially to get the knack of it. And that should be encouraged all the time. And doctors shouldn't give easy get-out clause all the time saying, don't worry if you can't do it. Um, as though it's really, really difficult. It's not. But women do need support. And I think that that really is a health concern, a government concern, because... Um, this is the future generation. Now, there are also children who need formula because they're adopted or, you know, for some very good reason, the mother can't breastfeed. But in that case, I believe it should be contingent upon the FDA and other health and regulatory authorities to ensure that that kind of food doesn't have sugar in it, doesn't have the kind of rubbish that we've just heard is in this stuff. Okay, depression. You know, it's a massive, massive problem. And uh, most adults, I suppose, during the course of their lives will suffer some depression. Um, chronic depression, obviously, is the most common. Acute is very severe, where you can't even get out of bed. But really, no one really knows what it is. And um, for years and years, the psychiatric profession have been banging on about you know, chemical imbalances, uh, which is the reason why a whole class of drugs was developed to readdress that balance called the SSRIs. But in fact, they've now discovered that isn't the case, that these um, chemical imbalances are a fiction. 
No one seems to know what depression is. So um, one study that's come out quite recently, which is interesting, where they are seeing a nutritional factor in depression, and in particular in um, a depletion of uh, an amino acid known as arginine, which is actually found in turkey and chicken, uh, soybeans and peanuts. So I just think with turkey, maybe that's why people feel so good at Christmas. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, they, they did a study amongst uh, a, a group of about 100 uh, people with major depressive uh, disorder and found that they were all low in this particular nutrient. And I know it's a subject we've covered on many occasions. And interestingly, with our upcoming April issue, we cover it again. For those of you who are watching the vlogcast as opposed to the, listening to the podcast, Lynn just held up a copy of the magazine, which deals with mood swings. So do you want to tell us a bit more about that and nutritional factors in mental problems? Well, I think what we are discovering is the whole issue of the sick brain, of it being just a, chem a problem of faulty chemistry in the brain, is really simplistic, Brian. Yeah. I mean, what we're discovering more and more is either it's some sort of imbalance in the body, it's a physical type of thing, um, where a person may be uh, an overproducer of copper or have too much histamine, um, and also have inflammation in their body. And that can cause all kinds of incredible upsets that manifest as so-called mental illness, whether it's depression or bipolar or whatever. And so rather than this thinking that, oh, it has something to do with not having enough feel-good chemicals in the brain like serotonin, it has much more to do with being like a recipe with the wrong ingredients in it. I mean, if you think of your body as a cake, it has too much of one ingredient and not enough of another, and that's why it's producing this uh, abnormality in your brain. And for many, many years, um, so-called orthomolecular medicine, um, created by Dr. Carl Pfeiffer in the States, in Princeton, looked at mental illness as being, having this biological cause, this physical cause. And he found when he gave certain supplements or changed people's diets, they got so much better. Mm. And here we have mm. now a specific <laughs> nutrient really demonstrated to have a link with depression. It makes so much sense. Right. Okay. Vaccinations. They're a bit like Morris dancing, aren't they, really? You either love it or you loathe it. But vaccination seems to divide the world, doesn't it? Between those who say there's absolutely nothing wrong with them, they're perfectly safe and they're incredibly effective, and those who say they are the poison of Satan. And probably with always with these things, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. And um, interestingly, a study from Australia has just come out where they are finding quite a link between the DTP vaccine, which in, which in, and, and particularly the pertussis, the P part, which is whooping cough, component of it, and allergies. And what they have discovered is that um, incredible epidemic of allergic children in the last 20 years or so, some needing hospital care, 
um, which seems to coincide with the introduction of a newer version of the DTP vaccine. And so um, in, a, in Australia, where, as I say, the researchers are based, the, D, the new DDP, um, which is the, uh, I think it's the acellular version, came out in 1997. And, and suddenly we've seen from there on in an incredible increase in the graph of children who've been reporting all sorts of food allergies, skin allergies, you name it. And um, they're saying, well, what happened at that point for that graph to suddenly zoom up? And they said, well, one obvious factor is the introduction of this new vaccine. Because, um, you know, and, and they said, well, that in itself may be not enough. So they did a, a study of other countries where, again, this new vaccine was introduced. And lo and behold, yet again, they also found a sudden and rapid increase in allergic reactions amongst children. Uh, one, one clinic in Perth reported a 12-fold increase in cases, and for those fatal anaphylactic shock increased by 10%. 18% of kids developed a food sensitivity, and 26% suffered from allergic eczema. So, as I say, they've seen the same patterns in the US and the UK, and now they want to really research this further. Because yet again, the manufacturers of the vaccine just aren't prepared to take a look at this stuff. But it, again, it, these researchers are saying, well, look, you could argue, well, you know, it's, it's, it, in, a, in of itself, it isn't proof, which, of course, it's not. But it is alarmingly suspicious. Well, and I think this is part of a bigger conversation, too, about vaccines. It's the conversation that the regulatory authorities, the governments, um, anyone in charge of childhood health doesn't want to have. And it's the kind of conversation that parents must have now. I mean, one of the big problems we're, we're, is that we're not asking any questions. We're not asking any kind of questions about vaccines. We're proceeding on the assumption of safety without, you know, just prima facie safety. These things have to be good for you. So we're pumping in more and more. I think in the U.S., children get something like 30 vaccinations before they go to school, and many of them when they're infants. And no one is asking the obvious question, what does this do to a developing immune system? So we have that problem. We also have governments trying to, and local governments, trying to crack down more and more and more by not allowing parents to have opt-outs to, to this vaccine, to these kinds of vaccines, if they want their children to go to school. I mean, but luckily, sometimes parent groups get together and actually shoot that down. We saw that in Florida mm -hmm. recently where, um, where parents... They were trying to do a more draconian type of law to prevent opt-outs, and the, and the parents got together mm -hmm. and um, successfully lobbied, and the, it was defeated. So that's the kind of thing we really have to have. But more and more, it's the kind of thing, like in America with the gun situation, it's a conversation we all need to have, a reasonable conversation. We, for years, for nearly 30 years, have been raising this as a conversation, just asking the questions. Mm -hmm. And I know 
we are sometimes demonized as being rabidly anti-vaccination. We're not. We're just pro-asking the questions. And the three important questions are, is it necessary? And you ask that of every single vaccine. Is it effective? You ask that of every vaccine. Some are more effective than others. Some are far more necessary than others. A lot of them are not very necessary anymore. And three, is it, and most importantly, is it safe? And as we've seen with this acellular one, that big question of whether there's a tie-in between all of these antigens being pumped into immune systems, immature immune systems, and this explosion of allergies and more, like autism, no one's asking that question. So you've got to be the one to do that. And, and just to add to that, the, the first part of your question, is it necessary? You know, part of that is also the nutritional status of the child. And that has to be a very important element in this, which is never, ever considered. And that when they do say often measles or whatever it might be is fatal. Well, yes, it can be in a nutritionally depleted child. And that's when these problems can be far more serious and life-threatening. But, you know, that has to be factored in. And, of course, when they show these statistics, they never do mention that aspect of it. And I think it's an essential part of the conversation as well. Well, and there's a lot of studies showing, for instance, talking about measles, mm. that when undernourished, malnourished children from third world countries or malnourished children from, you know, American ghettos are given vitamin A, they stop dying from measles. Mm. It's that simple. Mm. You know, it is very much linked to nutrition. And all of these kinds of diseases are linked to the biological state of the child, their, their nutritional state, how healthy they are. Mm. Okay. With my advanced years, this next report is something I cling to like a limpet does to a rock. And it's all about how do you live longer? Yeah? And, I, say, and I, I, sort of, I liken it really to trying to understand how a TV works, TV set works, by watching the programmes. Yeah, but nonetheless, that's all we have to go on. What are the habits, the lifestyles, the characteristics of people who are in their 90s? What are they doing? So if I emulate what they're doing, will I also therefore live to be in my 90s? So as I say, it's a bit like understanding TV while watching the programmes, but it's fun, in, I suppose, and let's, let's go through some of the things that they have noticed about people uh, in their 90s. One is that they seem to drink two glasses of red wine a day. That's not a bad start. They exercise for 15 minutes and they go out a lot. They're very sociable and they talk to strangers, which is very interesting. They also all have a hobby and um, they also drink two cups of coffee a day. Um, they keep their weight in check and all of these things add up to longevity or so they think. And um, I think really the fundamental point, though, in all this, which has sort of been missed, because I think these are all outward representations of something more profound going on. And I think it is all about actually having a point to being alive. And, um, you know, it's having that purpose of saying, well, will the world be a better place if I get out of bed today? 
you know, in whatever way that may be. It doesn't have to be a, a massive, you know, save the world type thing, but it somehow benefits somebody else in some small or large way. So your very being has a purpose to it. And I think, actually, that's the core. And all the other things that we do, I'm sure, all contribute a bit, but they be, may be manifestations of someone who is actually engaged in the world. Well, I, I'm always fascinated when I talk to healthcare practitioners in places like California, and they say that their waiting rooms are filled with very healthy patients who are really <laughs> unhealthy, who do all the right things. They do diet and they have exercising to death, et cetera, et cetera. But something is wrong in their life. Something lacks purpose, yeah. lacks focus, and I would argue lacks looking outward. I mean, one of the things I'm really fascinated about are studies of uh, altruism and what happens to people in their biology with altruism. And altruism is amazingly like a bulletproof vest. I mean, you look at studies of altruism and you find when you do anything for someone else, you're outward looking, whether it's just taking out their trash, your neighbor's trash, those people are healthier, happier, and live longer in every regard. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking about one of the most fascinating studies that I've ever found, which was of two groups of people. One were people who were living the good life. They had loads of money. They were on lots of holidays. They were just, you know, living the American dream. And when Researchers looked at their immune systems. They found that they were terrible. These guys were perfect candidates for heart attacks, you know, dementia, diabetes, the whole lot. Then they looked at another group, which weren't as affluent, but were living a life of service. They were doing for other people. And these guys had immune systems that were rock solid. These people were going to live forever. And I think that really kind of sums it up. It's all about community and being outward looking. And as you say, <clears throat> having a purpose, having a reason to get up in the morning and staying curious, that looking, there's been studies of people who live to 100 and over and over again, that's one of the key points too, is curiosity, maintaining mm -hmm. a sense of curiosity, of purpose, and as I say, of connecting with other people. That's Probably number one. Mm. Well, I'll see you the other side of 100, kid. <laughs> um, that's about it for this week. Thank you again for listening. I'm uh, Brian Hubbard. Check us out on the, our website. Buy our magazine. Subscribe to our magazine, even. And uh, if, by the way, you do hear some occasional noises, because we're not in a soundproof booth. We're actually doing it in our offices. WDDTYHQ pulsing heart of all that we do so it does mean there's occasionally a noise going on so i hope you don't mind that but thank you very much for listening and we look forward to talking with you again soon as i say i'm brian hubbard and i'm lynn mctaggart thanks for listening we'll be in touch soon mm -hmm.